Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our reading is going to come from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. And if you're able, we ask that you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, friends, good to be with you this morning. It's been a great morning already. I don't remember how many years ago it was exactly. It was probably 13 or 14 years ago that I first saw the musical Wicked. Have some of you seen Wicked? You probably have. It's been around a long time. Uh, and, you know, it was just, it was so, the story's so great. The music was so engaging. Um, you know, Stephen Schwartz, the composer, is one of the greatest of all time. The scenery, everything was so great that as soon as I got home that night, I got online and bought tickets and went and saw it the next night as well. It was that, it, it was that exciting to me. And then it kind of became like a huge part of our family, listening to the soundtrack constantly, and our kids, you know, perform various pieces of the music, et cetera. It's just a, a big part of it. it. But part of what makes Wicked as a musical, whether you've seen it or not, what makes it so powerful is that it's telling a story that actually makes you see another story that you already knew in a totally different light. The original story is the famous story of the Wizard of Oz. And what Wicked does is that it, it tells again this story that makes you see that the Wicked Witch of the West maybe isn't quite who you thought she was. And, and the wizard is not quite who you thought he was. And how Oz came to be and all these things are not quite what you thought they were. And it's a very powerful experience to, to hear a story that changes how you see the world. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because I think that's a great analogy to exactly what we have in the Gospel of Luke. And if you are here last week, you know that we've just begun a new series in the Gospel of Luke that I'm very excited about. I'm looking forward to seeing what God does in our hearts. And at the core of Luke, I believe, is him telling the story of Jesus coming into the world in a way that is not just, you know, just telling us that story, but in a way that is very intentionally meaning to subvert how we think about how the world really is. It's an intentionally overturning story that'll help us see things differently. He's gonna show us like a deeper truth that when you go back, then you see it differently. It turns out Vader is Luke's father, Tyler Durden is the narrator, and Snape was a good guy. Everything has changed. And that's really what happens with Luke, is that you get this retelling of and a re-understanding of the whole world. And so as we go through Luke's gospel, what we're especially going to see is that the way that God turns upside down our sensibilities and our loves and our habits. We're gonna see that God really values humility 
over strength and over power. We're going to see, especially in Luke, that the people that the world would consider lessers in society, so the poor, the uneducated, the oppressed, in ancient cultures, women, uh, the people disabled in various ways, we're going to see that Luke is really intentional to show us that those people are particularly exalted and honored by God. And most importantly, we're going to see that there is a true king who's not the Caesar, he's not any president you like or don't like, but there's a true king of the universe who is actually surprisingly this lowly born Jewish infant. And the verses that I had Mo read for us, which really are the conclusion of our story, which we're going to look at today, you see this upside down reversal theme in a, in a very poignant way. If you, let me just put these on the screen here for you again. Luke chapter one, verses 50 to 55, Mary sings, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. And like a good musical, this is this aria, this is this solo moment for Mary to kind of belt this out right at the beginning of Luke's gospel to say, listen to this, God is gonna turn everything upside down that you and I expect. And so over the next 24 chapters of Luke, about 70 sermons ahead of us, as far as we've planned it out, as we go through Luke, I wanna invite you to have your ears and your eyes attuned to how Jesus is gonna model for us and teach us this topsy-turvy way of inhabiting the world that is not like Roman culture and it's not like our culture as well. And so that's like the, the 30,000 foot kind of introduction to Luke that I wanna give you. But today we have before us in chapter one, verses 26 to 56, a very specific real life, not abstract, but a really on the ground story. And it's the story of Mary and how Jesus' birth came about. And you know this story probably, whether you've been coming to church or not, and you probably have put this story on the shelf as like a Christmas story, and you kind of get it out during December, and then with our inflatable yard Santas, we put it in a box and put it away. That's not what you should do with the story. This story about Jesus' uh, conception and birth to the Virgin Mary is not just really a Christmas story, it is the Christian story. It's foundational to what Luke wants us to hear, what God wants us to hear about the world that's changing. And in fact, this story has a name. We call this story the Annunciation because it refers to Gabriel announcing to Mary what's about to happen. And this story is so important in the history of the church and in the history of our faith that it's one of the most painted stories you'll find in, in, from all the Bible. I mean, you will see every great master and everybody else tried their hand at painting this scene, the Annunciation. And most interesting I, I found just this week is that this story was so important that it's feast day, the day that's connected to this story, March 25th, for most of European history was the first day of the year. So about AD 567 until 1580 something in most of Europe and till the 1750s in the British Empire, March 25th was actually the first day of the calendar year. Do you know that? It sounds totally weird. And it's because they realized that the Annunciation, this moment of the description of what happens in the story was so important that it really should begin how we think about the year. 
That's how weighty this is. So let's look at it. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll put this, the verse on the screen as well. But if you have a Bible, you can look there with me, starting in verse 26. Let's see what God is saying. It says in verse 26, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, so it's very short, but a lot of important kind of setup information here. We meet this young woman. She's betrothed, which means she's in a kind of legal contract with someone to be married, but they haven't consummated the marriage yet. And the man that she's going to be married to is of the Davidic line, the line of David, where God promises to restore his reign upon the earth. But particularly, you saw in verse 26 that it mentions Elizabeth. This recalls the preceding story. Whether you're here last week or not, you may know the story, the first story in Luke. It tells the story of Zechariah, this priest, who uh, he and his wife were older and they were barren, they not been able to have any children. And the same angel, six months earlier, Gabriel appears to them and tells them that they are going to have a child and that child is going to be John the Baptist. So look then at verse 28. The angel went to Mary and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay, that's a lot. That is a lot that happened in just a few verses. And I was trying to wreck my brain about how can I analogize for us, get us to feel what Mary must have felt in this moment. And I couldn't really come up with anything great. The best thing I'd come up with is imagine you're standing in your kitchen and you're about to strain some noodles or flip over a salmon burger and all of a sudden someone is there in the kitchen with you. All right, high alert. And then you realize that person is a supernatural being. Now it's high alert plus you're freaking out. And then he greets you positively and says, do not be afraid, too late for that. And then drops this bombshell that your life is about to completely change. And in some ways it's kind of amazing. You're gonna have this important child, but it's mostly a shock, mostly a negative shock that all of a sudden Mary's life is going to change. She is not married yet and she is found to be with child. Now this whole scenario, again, very short, very quick, wrapped up in five verses. It's very confusing, that is, to Mary, and completely unexpected and shocking. And it really is difficult to come up with an analogy of all the complex things she must have been feeling. But look at verse 34. She says, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? And in this case, Mary's answer is, or her, her response to this is, of course, completely understandable. She picks up on the real sticking point. I'm having a son, cool, 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 cool. A special son who will become a king, okay, a little unexpected. One problem, this is physically impossible in my current state. Look at Gabriel's response then in verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is now in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. I don't know if you've ever paid attention 
to times when angels appear in the Bible. They don't appear super often, but when they do, there's a very kind of standard pattern of what happens, and you see it here as well. You have the appearance of an angel, you have a reaction from the human, fear always. You have the angel's message that's delivered from God. You usually have an objection to the message, like some question about how can this be? And then you have the giving of a sign. And that's exactly what happens here. It's what happens to Moses in Exodus 3. It's what happens to Gideon in Judges 6. It's what happened to Zechariah in the previous story, the exact same thing. And Gabriel explains how this humanly impossible thing is going to happen. This is a unique, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in a way that goes beyond anything anybody could have imagined. Now, if you keep reading, you see there's one more phase to the story in verses 39 to 45 before Mary's song. And what happens is, after this annunciation to Mary, she is understandably freaking out, and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Gabriel said, your cousin Elizabeth, who lives down in the south, she's way up in the north in Nazareth, is with child, which is unexpected news. She can't Snapchat her and you know check her location. Are you with child or something? She The only way she can go and find out. So she goes, you see in the rest of the story, and she finds out that indeed her formerly barren cousin Elizabeth is also having a miraculous baby. And then she receives this amazing blessing, this confirmation from Elizabeth. Verse 41, you can look there, says that the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth and John danced in her womb, and she spoke these powerful words to Mary in that moment and said she was blessed by God and that the fruit of her womb was blessed and she was the mother of the Lord. I, I love how one commentator puts it, he says, prenatal John, who's in Elizabeth's womb, got a kick out of Mary's arrival and hence so did Elizabeth. I think that's a very clever way to say it. And so to conclude the story then, Again, Mary breaks out into song, like a great Broadway musical. She breaks into song, and that ends the scene, and that's verses 46 to 55. Okay, so we've heard this story before. What do we do with this? Like, why, why is this here? Is this, why is this more than a Christmas story? What is God actually saying to you and me through this? Well, I think there are a lot of great and helpful things that we could draw out of the treasure trove of, of the story that this is. We could talk about the centrality of the incarnation for Christianity, that God in Jesus isn't just sending another prophet in the world to teach us or instruct us, but he actually takes on flesh. He takes on our very human nature so that we, who are our human nature being corrupted, can be fully remade into the image of God, which Jesus is. We can also talk about, related to the virgin birth and how how central that is for God saving us that he takes on our nature but without sin and thereby establishes a new way of being human, one filled with the spirit that we then walk in his ways. We could talk about how all of this is the, the fulfillment of the promise that God had said that he is going to bring a king to come and restore his kingdom. That would be great to talk about. And we could also talk about the greatness of Mary here who the text says is the most blessed of women. And while we might wanna say that some versions of Christianity might sometimes overplay Mary's role, I think for sure in our tradition, we way underplay it. We rarely talk about Mary, and we rarely talk about the fact that she is, according to the text, the most blessed of all women as the mother of the Son of God himself. In fact, throughout most of the church's history, 
Mary was described as a second Eve. And just as Eve is the first mother of all humanity, Mary then plays the central role in the rebirth of humanity through Jesus. So all those things are things we could have sermons about and lessons about and write books about, but we can't do everything in one sermon. And so if, for example, we were to all go together to Florence, to the Uffizi Museum, and, and look at da Vinci's painting of the, of the Annunciation, which is a great one, we could look at one part of it and say, what's going on here? Like, what is Mary reading? And what clothes is she wearing? What's the significance of that? And that's what I want to do for her. I want to focus on something that's very important of the many things we could say about this story. I want to focus on something that's really important. And I'd sum it up with this label. I want to look at Mary's fear and Mary's faith. Mary's fear and Mary's faith. First, Mary's fear. Fear, again is always the understandable response when an angel appears to any human. That's why every time an angel appears, the first thing they say is, do not be afraid. You know, easy for them to say. But there's something else going on in Mary's fear here, and we need to consider her situation. Again, Mary is betrothed, so she, the marriage has not been consummated, but this is more serious than an engagement legally, such that for her to turn up pregnant would not just be... Um, immorality or some kind of scandal, it would actually be adultery. It would be considered adultery because she's legally bound already to Joseph. You see in Matthew 1 that it's quite a scandal, and Joseph graciously is going to divorce her quietly, but it's because it's a huge, it's a huge issue. We don't know whether the death penalty was still practiced for adultery at this time. We don't have a lot of evidence that it was, but the threat is always there, and even just as significant probably, Mary's life is over. Her whole life is going to be marked by shame and ostracism, especially in an ancient honor-shame culture. She is, her life is ruined. She has no hope for anything. And on, what's really sad about this is that women in many parts of society in the ancient world that found themselves in this situation, which is probably rarely their fault, they often have no recourse but to enter into prostitution and other ways because they have no way to live because they're completely shamed in society. And this is Mary's situation. All her hopes, all her dreams, all her plans are gone. Her life is completely ruined. And not just at that moment, but for a long time afterwards. I mean, people can do the math on marriage and pregnancy and birth. And it's probable that this story about Mary's birth of Jesus being, if you do the math, doesn't work with her being married to Joseph. That story probably haunted her and them for the rest of their lives. We see in John 8, 41, that in one of the times when Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders, they're really mad at him. And they say, well, we're not like you. We're not born of fornication which may be very much this understanding, this, this rumor, this story that Jesus was not a legitimate child. So what I want you to see is that Mary finds herself in an impossible situation, very anxiety-inducing, fearful. Again, everything she'd hoped for is gone. And the reality is that we all are actually, that is all of our lives, that we're living on this sort of precipice of disaster and death, 
we live most of our lives ignoring that, escaping that, and that's a grace in some ways because it would be overwhelming. But we have these moments where we sort of face it. I think this was Mary's moment where she really had to face the reality that everything she thought her life was gonna be is in an instant changed. So I think it's understandable that she would have a lot of fear. But I don't, what's clear is that's not the only thing she's experiencing and she's also experiencing great faith. Did you see in verse 38, the absolutely beautiful expression of faith that she had even in the midst of her fearful situation? Verse 38, I think is really the hot spot. Um, The angel responds, nothing's impossible. And look at her response in verse 38. Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. And I like how the ESV renders it here a little better. Let it be to me according to your word. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary's response of humble trust and embracing what God has for her, even in the midst of an impossible situation, is beautiful. It's an expression of incredible faith. And the way Luke has told us the first and second stories, the stories of Zechariah and the the story of Mary, we're meant to see a contrast to them exactly on this point. If you know the story from the previous one and and the beginning of, of Luke chapter one, again, Zechariah is this old priest. He's serving in the temple. The angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him that he and his wife are going to have a child, which is miraculous. I mean, they'd been infertile forever. And he responds in verse 18 by saying, how can I know this is true for I'm an old man and my wife is old? Now, I want us to be sympathetic to Zechariah because he really struggles to believe this good news, this thing he's longed for. And I think we can sympathize with him, with his unbelief here. I mean, he has been asking probably for a son or a daughter for decades. And all he's gotten is a stone wall answer. And even though he's a righteous man and he's walking in God's statues, as it says, I think his heart is probably a little part of it has died. Maybe like a part of your lung that dies and can no longer fill with air. I mean, that can happen to our hearts as well, that our souls can, uh, a part of us just dies in the sense that we stop having hope. And even though he's hoping, I'm sure in a general way for the Messiah to come, it's hard for him to believe that God's actually going to do something good for him. Now in this, Zechariah is not alone in the Bible. I mean, the patriarch Abraham struggled to believe on the infertility issue as well. The prophet Moses struggled to believe. The King David struggled to believe. The apostle Paul struggled to believe. That's okay. You and I are just the same. But I think God wants us to see the difference in the beauty of Mary's response to Gabriel. Even in the midst of her fear, she says, I'm your servant, let it be according to your word. You know, there are a number of women in the, in the stories of the Bible that were barren and then had a child. I mean, that's a miracle, but it's nothing compared to Mary's situation, a virgin who has a child. And there were, you know, it's hard to believe after being infertile that you're going to have a baby, but try believing that you're a virgin and you're going to have a baby. But that's Mary's situation. Now you may think, wait a minute, she also challenges, she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? But if you notice, if you look at the story carefully, their responses are very different. Zechariah, understandably, with some brokenness and sadness and struggling to believe, he asks for a sign. 
Mary's not asking for a sign. She is just asking legitimately, how, how is this even possible? Because it is possible for a barren couple to have a child eventually, but for a virgin to have a child is not possible. So the response is very different. You could see it in what happens, if you remember the story of Zechariah, is that Gabriel says, because you do not believe, you'll be mute, which was kind of a severe mercy, as Pastor Kevin said last week, that he wasn't rejected, but there was, there was a bit of a, a rebuke for his lack of belief. But Mary, her response is beautiful. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done according to your word. So here's the question I think that asks, that puts upon us. How in the world does Mary go from this overwhelming, fear-filled, anxiety-causing, impossible situation? How does she go from that to verse 38 to say, I am your servant, let it be done according to your word, and then finally even to a song of praise in the last part of the story? How does she go from that to praise? Well, the stories of Scripture are written for us. They're written so that we might learn how to inhabit the world in God's ways for our good. And I said earlier that all of Luke is really intentionally teaching us that God's ways are not what we expect. I mean, just think about this. Somebody pointed this out to me in the service, great insight that, you know, Zechariah is a prophet who can't speak then. And Mary is this nobody who speaks this, this, sings out this amazing prophetic word from God. That's a reversal. But I think also here, having faith and praising God in the midst of anxiety and an impossible situation, that's not natural. That is not what you and I would naturally do. So how does this come about? Well, like Mary, you and I all experience fear and anxiety. It may be small nagging thoughts and doubts that are like a low-grade fever that just kind of haunts you. It may be moments of turbulence during the flight of your lives where you feel like your whole life is shaking like the plane, you feel your stomach drop. Maybe protracted seasons where you're facing grief and loss and uncertainty, you just feel totally stuck. What anxieties did you bring in with you this morning? What anxieties do you bring in with you? There are things that are on our backs and tripping up our ankles all the time. Maybe it's financial worries. Maybe it's health crisis. Maybe it's global affairs, fear of nuclear war. Maybe it's anxieties about your kids. Maybe you've got a one-month-old and you're worried about things. Maybe, like me, you've got a 315-month-old and then everything in between, and you're still marked by worries, worries about car accidents, worries about things, bad choices your kids might make, other loved ones. What anxieties are you aware of that are affecting your life? Maybe anxieties that come from regrets. Maybe fears about consequences for something you've done, maybe maliciously or accidentally, maybe fears and anxieties about things that might be done to you. Maybe it's the fear of death. I mean, the ultimate fear that all humans have and fight against. I mean, you fill in the blank of what your anxiety is. And I think it's important that we understand that like Mary and like us, 
you know, having anxiety and fears, it's not just a personality type, it's not just a mental health condition, although some people do genetically and environmentally are more inclined towards fear and anxiety, but the reality is it really marks the human life. Because to be human is to be limited and to really not ultimately be in control. And we can live a lot of our lives not paying attention to that, but when you do, it's impossible not to feel the fear of that. I've been in ministry about 30 years now, and one of the things I've seen, and especially even in more recent years, is that fear is no respecter of persons in the sense that it does not matter how wonderful your life seems to be, how much money you have, what a great job, whether you have a prestigious job and everybody tells you you're great, how good or bad your marriage, it does not matter. Every one of us, if we're honest, is plagued and marked by a lot of fears and anxieties. And if you don't feel that, you're probably not in touch with reality. And this is the human plight. That's okay. God knows it and he cares. And this is why the Bible talks a lot about anxiety and talks a lot about fear and gives us stories like of Mary and others who are facing impossible situations. And what I want you to see is that when Mary says in the midst of her impossible situation, I am the Lord's servant, be it done, let it be according to your word. Do you feel that that is the place of true freedom? Have you experienced that when you've faced an impossible situation and you get to the bottom of yourself, you get to the bottom of your circumstances and you realize that all you can do is say, I'm the Lord's servant, be it done according to your word. That, friends, is the place of freedom. And I think we all want that kind of faith. That's the blessed life. That's the happy life, according to the Bible. We admire people who handle life that way, but how do we find it? Maybe for you, like me, you've been helped by self-talk and positive thinking, maybe paying attention to your body, some deep breathing exercises, counseling, therapy, medical and psychiatric help. All those things are graces from God and they're very helpful. And we encourage you, you know, various ways that all of us need helps and those are many of them. But I think scripture says, in addition to that, that Christians are not supposed to grieve like the world does without hope. And I think we can also apply that we're not supposed to live in fear like the world does. To be a Christian is to have a hope in the midst of fear. So in addition to these other ways that can be really helpful to help us deal with our anxiety and chronic struggles, etc., I think what we see in scripture and what we see in Mary is that there's a great freedom in even in the midst of our fears, turning our direction to God, not being like the world where, I mean, Friends, I've often talked with friends, and many of you, to say, like, I don't know how, life is so full of anxieties, I don't know how people live without some hope that there's a God. And I think what we see in Mary is this incredible turning to God and believing that he's good. And I'd sum it up this way, that we, we can face our fears with faith when we see God clearly, and what does it mean to see God clearly? At work for our good in all things. Do you believe that? 
Think of Mary's impossible situation. Think of your situation, large or small. Do you know that God is at work for all, in, in all these things, doing a thousand good things on your behalf? I think the key <clears throat> to handling the reality of fear and anxiety in our lives is not to deny it, not to just give all our energy to fixing it, but in the midst of it, to consciously, intentionally look to God as our Father who is doing good on our behalf. And I, I was thinking about this a lot this week, um, as you, about 275 of you know, in our men's and women's Bible studies that we do during the week, we're all doing the Psalms together. And we were last week of Psalm 56. And it is such a good example of this sort of looking to God in the midst of our fears. David has already been anointed by God. He knows that God's called him to be the king. He's looking forward to this good life, just like Mary probably was. And then all of a sudden he finds himself for probably about a decade on the run while the bad king, Saul, is trying to kill him. And in the midst of that, he had lots of situations where he was overwhelmed by his fear. And so he prayed and he, and he wrote these songs. And in Psalm 56, Verses three and four, it says, he says, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Several years ago, I faced what was this far in my life by the hardest season. And this even includes, you know, my wife's medical condition in the last few months. But this was even worse in many ways, um, emotionally, in the sense that, I faced a situation where I was so distraught and so traumatized even by something that happened that I understood what it meant to lay prostrate. Like I literally several times fell down on the ground in weeping. It was such a traumatic and you know, part of the providence of God is that God used that to prepare me for later trials like the, the trial with, with my wife's brain tumor in recent years. I matured through that, but in that moment, this verse particularly really was what I found at rock bottom. That to say, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And friends, whether your anxieties are caused by other people or other just fears, that same mechanism of finding at the bottom this, this turning to God because you have nothing else is the place of true freedom. And you know, when we think about anxiety and fear, and I mean, just start paying attention to how much of our day is given to that and how much of our energy is given to anxiety and, and, and fear, I think it's, it can feel really burdensome when you see the Bible talk a lot about not being afraid, and it could feel like maybe just another way you failed. But I, I, I love this idea that I got from my, my, my friend Scott Swain. He, he talks about how when the Bible talks to us about our emotions, a lot of times we think of our soul or we think of our heart like a cup that's of a fixed size. And so we look inside and we see lots of fear and anxiety. And then we, we know we're supposed to have faith. And so we feel like we have to like pour out that fear and to have faith and that those are like in competition with each other because we can only have one thing, one, one liquid in the cup of our hearts. But actually, that's not, that doesn't really accord with the reality of our experience or what scripture says. So what if instead of thinking about your soul like a container, what if you thought of it like a balanced scale where we have 
fears and anxieties, real things in our lives that happen in the past and in the present, real things we might be worried about in the future, and those do weigh us down and those are real. But we don't have to, in fact, we can't really get rid of them, but over time, we can add weightier things to our soul. The weightier things like hope and faith and even joy. And what I love about that image, what I hope it encourages you about it as well, the way to deal with the anxiety and fear in your life is not to deny it or say, well, I've got to not have that and just cover it up with some superficial faith. It's to actually acknowledge to be human is to be limited and to be, and to be powerless and to, to embrace that that's the reality. But in the midst of that, over time, to learn with even just small steps, even if just mustard seed faith, oh Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, to, to turn to God so that the weightier matters of joy and hope and love and faith will begin over time to be of, of a, a higher weight in your soul than just our fears. You see, faith in God doesn't mean we don't face difficult situations like Mary or Zechariah or others. Doesn't mean we're not gonna face impossible situations, nor does it mean that our lives will be free from fear and anxiety, real or perceived. But faith in the midst of that, even through tears, looks up to God and believes, even with a little bit of faith, that God is doing good on our behalf. It's true in the Old Testament, it's true all the way through, and the ultimate picture of it is exactly what this story is really about, that God has come into the world in the Son so that we might, as we sang, no longer have to bear the penalty of our sin or the shame of our sin, all the things that make us afraid, and so that we can have a hope. Don't forget the forward-lookingness. A hope that God is going to set the world to right that the injustice is done to you, the anxieties about your children, the fears about medical situations, financial situations, and ultimately death, which is the enemy of all of us, even those ultimate and every kind of fear in between, God is going to set the world to right. That is the hope. And as we, even with a small amount of faith, concentrate on that, then we don't have to grieve and fear as the world does, but that can weigh deeper and deeper into our lives over time, even as we experience the reality of our fears. First Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties upon the Lord, for he cares for you. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.